Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org friendshipwithgod.org or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. And now it just seems like, okay, yeah, Dad, look, you know, they want to distract the father now from any more questions about their encounter. And so it seems as though they're moving on to, let us show you the corn. Let us show you the great corn. You're so hungry. Everybody's hungry. Look at this, you know, that we brought back. And now we can just enjoy a great meal together. And so then they all open their sacks to show off the great corn. And they come back with the bam, you know, this like everything backfires on them because they had not looked in their sacks because they were terrified back at the inn. Remember, we said a little strange, but they didn't do it. And now all their bundles of money just come rolling out, spilling out in front of them. And they're all afraid. They're all afraid. Now, what it says here is that they're all trembling with fear. And it says, you see that, verse 35, both they and their father, when they saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. Both they and their father were afraid. And they were afraid for different reasons. Why were the brothers afraid when they saw the bundles of money? Okay, they're really afraid because it's a further confirmation that the befell is not right that they're being judged by God. And so the story has fallen apart right in front of them with this money. Okay, so if that explains why the brothers were afraid, then what is the explanation for why the father is afraid? What is Jacob thinking now when he sees this? What is he afraid of? He thinks his sons have stolen the money back. And he remembers how his sons were the ones that plundered the Shechemites. And he thinks they pulled a fast one. That before they left, they stole their money back on their way out of Egypt. How stupid can you be? That's what he's thinking, you know. Now, this is way too much for Jacob. This has just been over the top. And he lets loose, in the next verse here, with a fit of anger. He's so caught in tormenting anxiety that the words that he said, I don't know, he probably regretted after saying it. But he let loose in verse 36. Jacob, their father, said unto them, Me have you bereaved of my children. Joseph is not. Simeon is not. Now you'll take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. So in verse 36, he doesn't trust his sons at all. And what he says here, that he's not trusting his sons, is he points the finger at them and he says, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Now when he says children, he's not just talking about Simeon here. In fact, he even says, he says, he didn't say, me, have you bereaved of my child? Simeon, okay, that would have been the most immediate problem. Simeon is down in Egypt. But now he lets loose and he says, children, you bereave me of my children. And he, he refers to Joseph. He brings up Joseph. Me, have you bereaved of my children? 
Joseph is not. So what's that show here? It shows here Jacob is blaming them for Joseph's death. From that statement, we can see that, that Jacob figures that they killed Joseph. That's what he's thinking. They are the murderers of Joseph. So now in this fit of grief and anger, he reveals what he believes when he says, me have you bereaved of my children. With that statement, he lets it out that he believes that, that for over 20 years, Jacob has believed that the brothers were responsible for murdering Joseph for his disappearance. I mean, he knew about their jealousies. He, he had witnessed what they did to the Shechemites. He knew what they were capable of through Levi and Simeon. But it never came out what he believed. It never came out. But this statement, it comes out. Me have you bereaved of my children. He has betrayed his true feelings that they murdered Joseph. For over 20 years, he's believed this. This his son's murdered his favorite son. And now it comes out. What a statement. He's calling his sons a bunch of murderers. He feels that he's living with his sons and living with his sons that he's living with a bunch of murderers. He feels his sons are the enemies of his life. Jacob in his home is in a state of what the Lord Jesus Christ described in Matthew 10, 36. Matthew 10, 36 says, a man's foes shall be they of his own household. That's Jacob's feeling right now. He feels like Adam who was living with his son Cain, who had killed Adam's other son, Abel. How do you think Adam felt living with Cain, knowing that Cain killed Adam's other son, Abel? Betrayed. He felt betrayed. Adam felt Cain had betrayed him. How do you think David felt thinking of his own son, Absalom, when he said in 2 Samuel 16, 11, 2 Samuel 16, 11, David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son, which came forth of my bowels, seeketh my life. How did he feel? Betrayed. David felt betrayed by his son, Absalom. How did the Lord Jesus Christ feel when Judas Iscariot brought the soldiers to the secret place, the secret garden, to arrest him? He felt betrayed. The Lord felt betrayed by Judas. And how do you think Jacob now feels? Living with his sons, who he believes has killed Joseph, betrayed. He feels that his sons have betrayed him. So when Jacob says this, me have you bereaved of my children, this is like an old infected wound. It's been there for a long time, and now it's been lanced. And out pours this old, bitter, angry suspicion that he's kept in there, shut up for so long in his heart when he, he believes, my sons have murdered Joseph. So Jacob now has really hit the bottom. And he says this at the end of verse 36. All these things are against me. I mean, that's the depth of depression. We can imagine seeing Jacob now go off alone in a corner all by himself and wail. All these things are against me. He's hit the point of the lowest depression in his life when he says all these things are against me. He met Many things, all things, were against him. In fact, he meant all of life was against him. Whenever anybody says something like that, all these things are against me, really what they're meaning to say is God is against me. God is against me. That's the Naomi syndrome. That's the Naomi syndrome when she came back to her hometown from Moab to Bethlehem with no money, no husband, no sons. They died, died, died. 
And she's greeted in the town, as remember, we looked at this in Ruth 119. Ruth 119. So they too, Naomi and Ruth, went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them. And they said, is this Naomi? And she said unto them, call me not Naomi, which means pleasantness. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full. The Lord hath brought me home empty. Then why then you call me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me. The Almighty hath afflicted me. That is the all things are against me statement. And she was in this state like that, of really believing all things were against him. It's very hard to get a person out of that state of depression by trying to be logical or rational, because they're not logical and rational with the situation. But let's just try to be logical and rational and just have a look a little bit at the all things that Jacob believed were against him. I mean, as far as he's concerned, he meant like Naomi that everything was against him, and then ultimately God was against him. But let's look at the immediate things that Jacob was confronted with when he said all these things were against him. So what were the immediate things that Jacob was referring to that all the things were against him? There are at least three. And so all the things that Jacob thought were against him, what was the first thing that Jacob thought was against him? Okay, (laughs) that's many, many things, all right. He lost his son. It's the disappearance of Joseph. So the first thing we're going to look at, but maybe this isn't the first thing, because there's so many things, but the first thing we're going to look at is the disappearance of Joseph. Was Joseph's disappearance really against Jacob? I mean, what happened to Jacob and his family as a result of Joseph's disappearance? What happened? They were fed. Joseph and his family, they were saved physically from the famine because of Joseph's disappearance. And not only that, but it's coming. But Joseph's family will be placed in the best part, the best land of Egypt called Goshen, where they're going to grow from a group of 70 plus to millions as a result of Joseph's disappearance. So we can see, first of all, that the first thing that Jacob felt was against him and the disappearance of Joseph was not against him, was not against him. What's the second thing that he thought was against him? Was the disappearance of who else? Simeon. Simeon. Okay, now Jacob says, this is a thing that's against me. Simeon's disappearance. But what was happening to Simeon as a result of his disappearance? Simeon was left in that horrible prison all alone. No assurance that anybody was ever going to come back. And what that was doing for Simeon was bringing Simeon to repentance. Simeon was being changed in that prison to a different person. And so we can see there that the second thing that Jacob might have thought was against him was really for him. And the third thing that Jacob might have thought was against him in the all things was now going to be the taking away of Benjamin. And this was really not against Jacob either because this helped Jacob to now wholly lean on God for his comfort, for his encouragement, for his strength, and not to lean on his second most favorite son, Benjamin. So were all these things really against Joseph? No, because all these things were the physical and spiritual preservation of Jacob and his family. And in the end, Joseph will be restored to Jacob. So in reality, it was just the opposite. All those things were for him. But Jacob saw all those things that were for him as being all those things that were against him. 
So when Jacob in verse 36 says, all these things were against me, in reality, when they're all for him, that's an illustration for us of how easily we're like Jacob to jump and say, all things are against me, when in reality, all things are for us. Like a person who told me one, you know, said one time, he said, you worry too much. And I said, no. I said, because most of the things I worry about don't happen, see? So... <laughs> So when we're in the middle of trials and we're under the gun, we choose the worst interpretation. We choose the worst spin, just like Jacob. When we should be taking the interpretation of faith, which is Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28, we know all things work together for good to them that love God. See, we should be taking the interpretation of Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6. So if all those things were really for Jacob and not against Jacob, then why did Jacob say that all those things were against him? Because of his ignorance, because of the weakness of his faith. And we're just like him. When we think that really all the things are against us, when really they're for us. So what Jacob needed and what we need is to realize that present troubles are working for us. You know, it's a very, very important passage in 2 Corinthians 4.16. 2 Corinthians 4.16, the end of that chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, when it says, For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction is but for a moment, which worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So this verse is teaching us is that what will make us faint, we faint not, is when we only see the outward man perishing. You know, and when we, when we look at our bodies and we say, oh, we're falling apart. You know, <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, we didn't get the 100,000-mile guarantee. We only got the 20,000-mile one. Now there's no more fix for us. But we faint not when we realize that when we look at our bodies perishing, as this verse is telling us in 2 Corinthians 4.16, when we look at our outward man perishing, we're saying, you know what it's saying? Is that in as much as my outward man is perishing, my inward man is being renewed day by day. It's like this. Like this. See? And so that means that it's almost like saying that to the same extent that our outward man is deteriorating, our inward man is being built up to the point we can say, well, I only have 50% cardiac function left now. And then we say, good, because that means I have 50% more spiritual heart function because <laughs> the opposite is happening. And then in that verse in 2 Corinthians 4.17, 2 Corinthians 4.17, it teaches us that what we'll endure is when we look at the things that are not seen. Because the things that are seen are but for a moment. They're very temporary compared to the eternal. And it teaches us that our woes on earth are just light. They're light compared to the far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. But how we deal with our problems depends on what we look at. Because we have a choice. We have a choice. And this is the whole point of 2 Corinthians 4.18. We're going to either look at the things which are seen, which are called temporal, 
or we're going to look at the things which are not seen, which are called eternal. So when Jacob accused them with the me have you bereaved of my children, he's clearly looking at the things which are seen. He's getting angry. And we can see why he's angry. Because if you look to the next chapter, chapter 43, verse 6, it comes out again. More comes out. More comes out. It's too bad this lid didn't stay on there. But anyways, it blew off. When in, in Genesis 43, verse 6, Genesis 43, verse 6, it says, Israel said, Wherefore dealt you so ill with me as to tell the man whether you had a brother? <laughs> and they said, The man asked us straightly of our state, of our kindred, saying, Is your father yet alive? Have you another brother? We told him according to the tenor of his words. Could we certainly know that he would say, Bring your brother down? Now, here we see Jacob is telling them, You talk too much. <laughs> Why did you tell him about our family? It's our personal matters. None of his business. You didn't have to go on to tell the Egyptian that you have another brother at home. It's all your fault. If you just never would have told that Egyptian you had another brother at home, then, then he wouldn't have demanded that you go home and bring him. And we can see Jacob here wringing his hands. He's in anxiety He's in, he, over the fact that his brothers told the Egyptian that they had another son at home. Oh, man. And now he's got to lose Benjamin because of this, because his sons had to tell him he had another brother at home. And the brothers told Jacob the truth that the man did ask their father if their father was alive. That was true. But then the brothers inserted something that was a lie. They lied to him again. The brothers lied to Jacob by telling him that the man asked him if they had another brother. The man did not ask him if he had another brother. The truth is, they volunteered that information up. And that's what their father was accusing them of. And that's what he was infuriated with. But they said, no, we didn't volunteer it. He asked us. So this interaction here between the sons and Jacob is one where the sons are lying to Jacob and Jacob knows they're lying to him. Great relationship, you know. <laughs> so Jacob is in a state of great anger at his sons for risking the life of Benjamin. Isn't it interesting, if we just stop there, just to look at Jacob being tormented with anguish and anger at his sons because they told this Egyptian that he had another son, when the Egyptian is really Joseph. And he knows there you have another, that's his only full brother that's missing. He knows very well. And just think about later, after Jacob knew that, oh, the Egyptian was Joseph, and he knew that Benjamin, his full brother, his only full brother was at home, and then, then Jacob thought, boy, I got all angry at my sons for telling them that they had another brother at home. I feel kind of foolish right now. What do you think? He said, I feel kind of dumb that I blamed my sons for telling Joseph that there was another brother at home. He already knew that. That's a picture of us. When time shows that we were foolish to have become angry and anxious over something instead of just trusting the Lord. So when Jacob says this, all these things are against me, it's clear that he feels that he's bearing all this burden alone. And no one really cares about Joseph and Benjamin except for him. Now, what should Jacob have done at this point? Which is really a question of what should we do when we're under this kind of pressure? Well, that's a time for Jacob to not speak. Don't say anything now. But realize that all this pressure is a call to prayer. It's a call for him to pray. He should have been praying at this point. He should have just turned away and, and talked to God along these lines. Lord, I don't know what's happening with my boys, but you know, and I'm just burdened for them. 
And I'm praying for them because you know their great needs and you can meet their great needs. So please don't let the devil snatch their souls away. And that's what Jacob should have done instead of fighting with his sons. Now, next, Reuben steps up. Reuben. Reuben sees himself as the firstborn and the genius in the group. (laughs) So he comes up with this proposal that he really thinks is going to comfort his father and give him the assurance that Simeon's coming back. And his brilliant proposal, he says in verse 37, verse 37, Reuben spake unto his father, saying, Slay my two sons if I bring him not to thee. Deliver him into my hand, and I'll bring him to thee again. So when Reuben says this, can't you just see the other brothers rolling their eyes going, Oh, no. And they think, Do we really have to say he's our brother? You know, I mean, can't you see the other brothers just thinking, Reuben, shut your mouth. But impulsive Reuben, he just speaks out from this position of unfounded self-confidence. And what's interesting about what Reuben says here is that there's not one mention of God. You know, he doesn't say, you know, God wants. He says, I will, I will. As a matter of fact, there's not been one mention of God in the whole history that the brothers have told the father. I mean, the only time they mentioned God in the whole history of going back to Egypt is when they said, at the end of verse 28, what is this that God hath done unto us? So for good reasons, none of the brothers want to bring God into any of this because they don't want the question to come up, well, what is God doing? So Reuben makes this very strange offer that the grandfather Jacob can kill his two grandsons if Reuben doesn't bring them back. Well, that's a big comfort. (laughs) The grandfather is supposed to kill the two grandsons if Simeon doesn't come back. I mean, what's Reuben thinking? Well, he doesn't think. What is he thinking? Somehow, the death of his two grandsons is going to compensate for not bringing Benjamin back. I meant to say Benjamin. Benjamin back. I mean, that's Reuben. That's Reuben. He acts and speaks without thinking. Now we see Jacob has heard about enough. And he makes this decision in verse 38. And his decision is, and he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he's left alone. If mischief befall him, by the way, in which you go, then you'll bring my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. So he clearly is not trusting his sons at all. He clearly is stating that he's still grieving over Joseph and he has anxiety over losing Benjamin. And he says, I'm not gonna allow you to take his only remaining favorite son, down to Egypt, and he blames them for risking that he's going to bring his gray hairs down to the grave. I mean, poor Jacob. Okay, so now, this chapter is a chapter of deceit, of fear, of depression, and if this was the end of Genesis, this would be very bad. (laughs) But, But fortunately, this is just chapter 42, and we've got eight more chapters. So God's not finished yet. And it's going to change. And that's a good thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being the God, Lord, that has compassion over our woes and um, all of our troubles and doesn't leave us in such a terrible state as the end of this chapter. So, Lord, we're looking forward to uh, what you're going to do as we see the pattern of who you are to save his people from their sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages 
can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. Or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Sunday Night Church is back. Join Friendship with God Bible teacher Tom Cantor at the new Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. Join us early each Sunday at 4.30 p.m. for food and fellowship with Sunday evening services to follow at 5.30 p.m. Watch Tom Cantor and the service on YouTube Live, located on the Friendship with God website. Enjoy encouraging teaching from our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, in a relaxed and family-friendly atmosphere. Sunday Night Church is back, so join us at the Friendship with God Fellowship every Sunday night at 5.30 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum at 10946 Woodside Avenue North in Santee, California. For more information, call us at 800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051, or visit friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org for the Friendship with God Fellowship.